Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the coup in Sudan. A coup attempt is taking place in Sudan. The Armed Forces Ministry has said in a statement that the army has detained the civilian Prime Minister, Abdullah Hamdok, and taken him to an unidentified location. Social media shows images of several cabinet ministers from the transitional government, the Sovereign Council, being arrested. Internet links have been cut. On the 25th of October, Sudan's generals removed the civilian-led government and seized power. On Tuesday this week, military leader Abdel Fattah al-Burhan announced that he was keeping toppled civilian Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok at Burhan's own house for, in his words, Hamdok's own safety. Hamdok's government had come to power in 2019. Back then, after months of mass protests across the country, the military ousted long-serving ruler President Omar al-Bashir. So it's been two and a half years since Sudanese protesters peacefully overthrew their dictator, Omar al-Bashir. A jubilant moment for Sudan, one designed to propel the country towards democracy. But the path hasn't been smooth. The generals then tried to crack down on protests but after a particularly bloody massacre in Khartoum in April 2019, international outrage and mediation by the African Union led to a power-sharing transitional government. After 18 months of protests and four months of negotiations, Sudan's ruling military junta and the opposition coalition known as the Forces of Freedom and Change inked a final power-sharing deal, marking the start of a 39-month transitional period. The relationship between civilians and military was always uneasy. Generals in particular feared for their control over key sectors of the economy. They worried they might be held accountable for abuses during Bashir's rule and the transition. They were especially nervous about handing over power completely to civilians, which was supposed to happen in July 2022. Over recent months, military leaders had stepped up pressure on Hamdok, criticizing in particular his management of the economy. A few weeks ago, they attempted to seize power, and this week they succeeded. Since the coup, thousands of Sudanese have again taken to the streets. Fury on the streets of Sudan. 
Outside the military headquarters in Khartoum, tens of thousands of men and women are converging once again to show their anger against a sudden military takeover that's threatening the nation's fragile democratic transition. Earlier this week, several people died and dozens were injured after troops fired on crowds. Today, we're going to talk to Jonas Horner, Crisis Group Sudan expert, and to Mariti Mutiga, our Horn of Africa director. We're going to talk about the coup and why it happened, what main dangers lie ahead, and how the world should respond. Jonas, Mariti, welcome on. Thanks, Richard. Good to be back on. Thanks for having us, Richard. So, Jonas, you've just come back from Khartoum. Could you tell us a little bit about what the mood is in the city after the generals have seized power? Well, in response to the coup, huge numbers of Sudanese have come out countrywide onto the streets to to, to protest this move. Uh, the coup comes, of course, on the back of further uh, protests that have insisted that the military back away from this transition and that this transitional period be brought through to fruition uh, for 2024 elections, which are meant to precipitate the um, the, the taking over of a civilian dispensation in, in Sudan. But protests have been vociferous. There's been burning of tires in the streets. If you look across the skyline of Khartoum, there's black pole of smoke um, from, from these fires, from street blockades. Uh, there are a range of uh, different uh, types of protests now scheduled for the coming days, culminating surely in major protests that will follow Friday prayers. And it's then that I think uh, Burhan and, and his fellow coup makers will, will see that they have made something of a miscalculation by making this move on Monday morning. And Jonas, can you tell us a bit about what motivated Burhan's camp to seize power? Yes, look, the military has a range of reasons, both personal and, and, and then motivated from external powers too. Um, for the military internally, uh, they have increasingly worried about the threat of justice for crimes committed both during the Bashir era and since then, during, during the revolution. They are worried too that they will lose control of you know, powerful and lucrative military companies that are key to the Sudanese economy. And, you know, they've also been newly emboldened by key regional powers who are themselves reticent about seeing a successful civilian transition in Khartoum. Naz, if I could just add to that, I think if we take a step back, we should remember that the military never wanted this arrangement in the first place. Their first choice when Omar al-Bashir was surprisingly toppled uh, by the street was a soft coup in which Bashir would be replaced by one of his acolytes. They did precisely that in April 2019. They brought in uh, General Ibn Auf. Not surprisingly, the protesters rejected that strongly. They went back to the streets, eventually toppled him. Um, and the joke at that time was that he lasted a, a shorter time than a Sudanese deodorant. But the thing is that um, ultimately the military only acceded to this civilian military arrangement when it became clear that the street would not budge after the terrible massacre in June 2019 that brought huge international condemnation. And, and that created a situation where you had a cohabitation between the civilians and the military. The military, as I said, never believed in it. Um, but I think, unfortunately, the problem was that the task for the civilians was almost impossible. The, 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 the burden on their shoulders was to deliver justice. As Jonas just said, they were supposed to revive a terribly sclerotic economy. They were supposed to re-engage with the international community. So this was a huge, huge 
task on their shoulders and at the same time the military only needed uh, at that time to deliver security uh, and guard the nation's borders uh, so it's not too cynical to surmise that the military was always biding its time was always looking for ways to undermine the civilians and ultimately unfortunately in the last couple of days they spotted the opportunity and struck so Jonas Mariti we'll come in a moment to the uh, some of the challenges that the the civilians in the transitional government faced over the past year and a half and we'll talk uh, in a moment too about the international politics uh, around the coup but could we talk a little bit about the security forces, the, the military itself, in that throughout the past year and a half, there have always been these tensions between Borhan's camp and Mohammed Habdan Hemeti Dagalo, widely known as, as Hemeti, who's head of the Rapid Support Forces, which is a, a paramilitary organization. There have always been these splits and tensions between these two parts of the security forces. Are those over? I mean, have they been bridged and they've united to seize power? Well, in early June, I think on the 2nd of June specifically, when I had been, um, the penultimate time I was in the country, Hemeti and Burhan, respectively, had almost come to a conflagration within Khartoum. This was over pressure for Hemeti and his rapid support forces to integrate into the armed forces. Uh, this is a stipulation and requirement both of the Constitutional Declaration and of the Juba Peace Agreement. Hemeti was having none of this, uh, and they came very close to, 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 to fighting in the capital. What happened to take the lid off of that boiling pot was that Cairo came in and uh, brokered something of a truce between the two. And ever since then, uh, Cairo has been instrumental in bringing the two sides you know, much more closely together um, into a, a more productive relationship. The coup would have been impossible if there was still daylight between uh, the two sides of the, the military because Hemeti has looked consistently for opportunities to differentiate himself from the Sudan armed forces um, and has always hoped to find some space to be um, a, uh, a champion of, of the transition. Ultimately, however, there, there will be probably some sort of showdown between Hemeti and the Sudan Armed Forces. Hemeti is derided in Khartoum and in, in, in the center of Sudan as uh, a poor and un uneducated camel herder from Chad, uh, even though he's made billions in supporting uh, the, the Emiratis in their uh, the military adventures in Yemen. And Libya has a vast business empire now that he can use to, to back his own uh, national ambitions and so we haven't heard the last of this rivalry between Hemeti and the and the Sudanese armed forces. I don't think we've heard the last of this rivalry. The the fundamental division between Hemeti and Burhan is reflected in the center periphery dynamics that are integral to Sudan. That have been integral to Sudan since independence and. There is very little space at the top, and especially in the way that the military conceives of power in Sudan, which is to see a very individual, specific apex power broker. And it is also an existential question for those, for Hemeti and, and for people he, he purports to represent in the peripheries. There is a will to see Sudan's peripheries, which have been so maligned since independence, and particularly under Bashir, to see them find a much more clear place at the table and a clear place in power in Khartoum. And, and for that reason, that rivalry will persist. And just practically, Jonas, before we talk about the street, the protesters, how does it actually look, the junta at the moment, is it both Borhan and Hemeti? 
That to date has remained very nebulous. You know, we're, we're, we're mere hours into, into this coup. And today, I believe, um, the, the, the 27th of October, uh, there is to be a presentation for just what this new government looks like. But my understanding is also that Burhan and, and those around him from the military side have had a lot of trouble convincing anybody uh, who is not uh, already immediately associated with the military to be part of that government. You know, there have been a range of arrests of ministers who they had wanted to participate in this new government, but they were arrested when they refused to, to be part of it. So we're, we're going towards you know, pure intimidation uh, of civilians who, who the military wants to see as part of this. But I think they're being served a dose of the reality uh, here. Uh, I think this was a miscalculation by the military. They misunderstood the, the level of uh, commitment and opposition um, and from the streets and from uh, the, the, the previous civilian government. There are those who will readily collude with, with the military, but they will not bring the sort of credibility that Burhan, who has led the coup, is seeking here. From Hemeti, I have not heard a word since the coup began, and I think he's probably happy to see it that way, given the slings and arrows that Burhan has taken in the first two and a half days. Just to add, Richard, uh, you know, I agree entirely with Jonas. I, I would say that one of the most pernicious legacies of Bashir was this divided state of the, of the security forces. He kept it deliberately that way just to try and prevent a coup, to try and prevent having a cohesive uh, military that could do exactly what he did in 1989 uh, and, and seize power. So the problem is that there are gradations within gradations. Even within the military, um, Bashir had empowered the intelligence services, given them a lot of equipment, recruited them from an even closer uh, web around the, the Nile Valley. And so these are very divided forces. I remember during the protests uh, when they really picked up steam around February and March uh, 2019, you'd have scenes where the police would try and confront protesters and the military, some of the soldiers, would come between the protesters and the police. And so the question now will become, do the rank and file within the Sudanese armed forces really support this, this coup? Um, you know, is this one that's mainly supported at the top and probably not so much at the bottom? Um, you know, we must remember a lot of Sudanese soldiers, their families also suffer the effects of this terrible economy inherited from Bashir. They've suffered from repression. And this, this is a generally a very unpopular regime. So I think one of the nightmare scenarios might be a further splintering, further fracturing of the security forces, a loss of control between the command and the lower ranks. So I think that's one thing to watch. Jonas, let me come back to you to ask you to tell us uh, about the protest movement. Who is out in the streets? The protest movement is really com comprised of a broad swathe of, of Sudanese society. And, and more importantly, it's, it's a national movement um, to see Sudan shift from an autocratic go governance system to, to, to a democratic in inclusive one. You know, on the streets, you see, you know, professionals, um, youth are extremely prominent and, and they have made use of the new media, social media to, to really uh, bring this home, to organize more effectively. Um, and, and this is a young generation that has uh, seen very little benefit under Omar al-Bashir uh, and, and wants to see something new and to have a say in, in their futures. You know, I think it's notable Sudan is really one of the, the younger countries on the continent, has a vast uh, youth population. 
And, and yet, you know, with Bashir in for 30 years, that essentially means you'd have to be 45 or 50 to have seen anything different, um, you know, politically in Sudan. So it's all the more impressive that young Sudanese are seeking democracy, seeking a participatory uh, place at the table in Sudan, and really doing it of their own volition and, and with great verve and bravery too. So the protest movement remained peaceful and nonviolent over the long months of protests against al-Bashir, despite suffering horrible violence. Do you think that might change if there are serious crackdowns in the days and weeks ahead? The nonviolent nature of the protests during the revolution really were, you know, it, its greatest strength. And I think the protesters are, are well aware of that. Uh, it's a real concern, though, as Mariti hinted at, that uh, any splintering of the military may see uh, sections of the military fall towards the civilians and therefore militarize this more broadly. So that, that in many ways, it's the thing we're worried about. We really would uh, counsel that the nonviolent approach that carried the protesters so far uh, during the revolution is reprised. And just to add briefly, I think a lot of this will depend on the way in which the generals react to the very substantial protests we've seen already. One would hope that they don't come in uh, with very uh, uh, brute force, um, that, that, that they don't really try and suppress too much, uh, because as, as Jonas said, this has been a really impressive movement, very sustained, very peaceful, very diverse. Uh, but if the generals do come in, as we've seen from some images today uh, in Khartoum, shooting uh, into the protesters, um, uh, just being very indiscriminate, unfortunately, that might force the movement to evolve. Um, and it's something for such an important country. One really hopes that the generals would exercise restraint. I think it's a political and popular loser for, for the military to, to visit violence on the protesters. When the military had engaged in a massacre on on June 3 of 2019, clearing out a sit-in site outside of the Sudanese army uh, military headquarters. About 100 to 130, probably more, were killed. And that was essentially the end of the military's uh, resistance because international uh, pressure as a result uh, completely swept away the military's moral or, or, or even logical um, foundation for, for remaining in power. The military is rather more interested in seeing a friendly civilian dispensation come in as a result of this coup. Uh, that is what the preparation has been in the last two or three weeks while I've been in Sudan. Uh, that has been, uh, that has comprised attempts to split up the Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC, which are the main civilian bloc. It's also been uh, extreme pressure on the Prime Minister Hamdok to dissolve government himself because constitutionally that um, is one of the only ways that the government can be dissolved. And I don't think the military uh, itself wants to sit in power as things stand. They are much more interested in bringing the country to elections that can deliver an outcome that is favorable to them and protects their economic and political interests. And so, Jonas or, or, or Mariti, I mean, what prospects do you think the new military rulers have of, in essence, buying off or trying to attract some civilians with which to share power and give a veneer of respectability to their government? 
That effort uh, began in advance of the coup. There was a, a quite concerted attempt by Burhan to split the FFC. My strong understanding from, from people I've just been speaking with on the ground is that Burhan went to most relevant um, parties within the Forces for Freedom and Change to try to seek um, uh, this, this split um, with, with, with some minor success. Um, but uh, in the end, the only two that he genuinely managed to peel off were uh, two signatories to October 2020's Juba Peace Agreement, uh, the, J the JPA, which brought um, armed groups in from the peripheries and brought them into government. Those two uh, are uh, Jibril Ibrahim, who's the head of the Justice and Equality Movement, um, and now the finance minister, um, or, or had been the finance minister until the coup. And the other uh, was Mini Manawi, who's head of the Sudan Liberation Movement, um, or a wing of the Sudan Liberation Movement, who is himself, uh, since the uh, Juba Agreement, now the regional governor for Darfur. So in essence, the only people that have been prepared to join the government so far have been the former rebels that the government signed a peace deal with in October last year. But other than that, nobody has been prepared to sign up. Uh, several much, much smaller and less significant parties did um, come in behind uh, Jibril and, and Mini in that effort. And they themselves held protests that, that led to a sit-in outside the presidential palace and the cabinet exactly a week before the coup. Um, that was, to my understanding, a situation where many of the participants were paid to join uh, that, that protest. So it sort of highlighted just how unpopular um, this, this breakaway faction was. Uh, and it appeared strategically that they were meant to be the facade for a softer military takeover. And I think with military having seen the level of unpopularity of that new wing, the coup became the, the, the next option for them. What about all the, there were rebels that didn't join that peace deal in Juba, how they responded to the coup? The two holdouts to the Juba peace agreement, Abdul Wahid al-Nur of the Sudan Liberation Movement and Abdulaziz al-Hilu of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, are both the commanders of the two most powerful armed groups in Sudan, the two who refused to sign the JPA. They refused to sign because they didn't have to um, and because most of the other groups had been um, largely emasculated and worn down uh, by about 2016 and for the most part, for the last, for the subsequent five years, were fighting as mercenaries in Libya. Uh, the holdouts, I think they will be able to say, I told you so at this point, because uh, they refused to join because they saw no sign of um, movement from the military to step back and away from the political milieu in, in Khartoum. And they were unprepared to join a government uh, and to hand over their forces to a government uh, in which the military retained the lion's share of power. So um, Al-Hilo has come out with, with a statement that reiterated all of the um, wishes and hopes of the revolution and, and his hope for Sudan to see a civilian uh, dispensation. Uh, for I have not heard from Abdul Wahid uh, Al-Nur, though. Moritha, let me ask you to talk to us a little bit about the assumption that seems to be widespread that there was external backing for the military coup. Uh, what are you hearing about that and what might be the motives? Yeah, that's a tricky one, Naz. And, and often with these things, you know, you can only work using an inference. And essentially, of course, these external powers will rarely want to leave their fingerprints on something that might backfire. Uh, but we have to remember that during the protest movement, the, the protesters loudly chanted against potential involvement, uh, particularly by neighboring Egypt, 
by the Gulf powers, most notably the Emiratis and the Saudis. And they worried from the start that those actors would try and seek to show up um, the military for a number of reasons, most prominently perhaps the, the fact that they don't want to see a successful democratic um, a, a dispensation in their neighborhood that might offer a demonstrative example to their populations. I think that fear of external involvement has never gone away. And we are now hearing the Sudanese very vocally uh, blaming some of these uh, external powers. Of course, there's no hard evidence yet. Um, but I have to say that, you know, people need to tread carefully. Um, Sudan is quite different from some of those other countries I mentioned. If you consider Egypt, and I know we are normally hesitant to make direct comparisons, um, but 90 to 95% of Egyptians live just around the Nile. It's very concentrated. Uh, you have a very cohesive military, massive intelligence network. Sudan is a more complex society, very dispersed, very diverse in even when you've had the most authoritarian leaders in Sudan, such as Omar al-Bashir, they had to car carry out bargains. They had to engage in, in, in very complex trade-offs with various uh, uh, power brokers within the country. And, and so I think stability is a very unlikely outcome from this coup. I think it's, it's really essential that these actors find a way to step back, not just um, in terms of political stability, but even on the economic front. They might imagine that they can put in some, you know, a couple million billions of dollars, maybe revive supplies of wheat and oil, but that's absolutely not sustainable. Sudan needs the sort of investment that comes in to create a more complex economy that can absorb what Jonas described accurately as a very young population, a restless, unemployed, underemployed population. And, and so I, I would hope that various actors would be careful going forward, that they will see that this is unlikely to stick and, and will consider uh, very carefully what comes next. And we'll come to Western powers and, and the African Union as well in a moment. But what does this say now for Sudan's relations with its other big neighbor, uh, Ethiopia? We've talked about this on the podcast before, how tensions between Khartoum and, and Addis have been growing, partly over the, the big dam, of course, that Ethiopia is building on the Nile, but also because of these disputed territories on the Sudanese-Ethiopia border. There was always the risk we worried about, about Sudan getting sucked into what's happening in Tigray, potentially opening supply lines to Tigrayan rebels. What does the military takeover mean for some of those dynamics? Unfortunately, Richard, as we often say when, when discussing the Horn these days, the outlook is quite bleak. Um, I, I would argue that the civilians were probably voices of moderation. Even where there was broad consensus about how to handle Ethiopia, there was a sense that the civilians were urging caution. Now, with the military fully in charge, we've seen them in the last couple of months sign military cooperation pacts with their Egyptian counterparts. Um, it's very likely that they will take probably a harder stance against um, Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia will likely respond in kind not to forget their Eritrean partners. So unfortunately, we might see an escalatory cycle where even possibly uh, to rally, to, to create the effect of rallying around the flag, one or the other chooses to escalate their border uh, conflict. So this is very worrying and it's something absolutely to watch. One would hope it doesn't get to the bad old days where both sides really fought very serious proxy battles against each other. 
Morsi, building on that, what do you see as the role of the African Union here in the current situation and what should be their role moving forward? That's such an important question, Naz. Um, it, it was really a, a, a fine moment for the African Union following the June massacre um, uh, that, that Jonas mentioned. The African Union took a very firm position. It quickly um, suspended Sudan despite you know, being internally divided about that. Some of the members of its Peace and Security Council took a very firm line. And it tends to be that uh, players on the continent are more embarrassed by a firm action by their own counterparts than by external actors. Uh, and so that really served uh, an effect of, of considerable deterrence and caused the military to back down and reluctantly accede to the power sharing agreement. And we're very glad to see that the Peace and Security Council of the African Union suspended uh, Sudan, I think that should not be the end of their engagement. They really do need to step in, try and fashion a way forward. And that might involve coming in to try and build uh, confidence between the military and the civilians. Uh, one criticism I would offer of the African Union is that they were very successful at the start, but then they dropped the ball. They didn't really appreciate enough how much was needed to build confidence between the civilians and the military given mutual suspicion. And, and so maybe they could come in and in the paper we issued, we suggest some outlines of a settlement which will not be comfortable to either party, but which could allow the military to uh, get the civilians back, but would also require the civilians perhaps to tone down some of their demands. I think it's, it's a difficult needle to thread, but the African Union certainly can play an important role. And spanning out more broadly, what about the role of Western actors? How have they responded? The Western response has certainly been to condemn the coup. Uh, Sudan had been seen as something of a, of a potential example for stabilization and and, a, and moving from autocracy to democracy, and and, ha, and had been, especially for the U.S. particularly, there had been you know renewed commitment in Washington to uh, making Sudan something of a success story. I, I'd like to go back about three days or four days though to say that you know all of the the threats that had come from from many sections of the international community who had wanted to see uh, the civilian dispensation succeed, uh, all of those threats were, were clearly ignored and, and cast aside by the military. Those um, you know, warnings about uh, turning off the taps of aid were delivered directly to um, Burhan and Hemeti, both after the original coup attempt on September 21st uh, and just days before this coup attempt. And it's striking that there was wholesale pushing aside of those threats, uh, clearly a more compelling set of powers and a more compelling set of interests um, are, are, are filling the military's minds. Um, and, and I think that is particularly notable, just how uh, limited, it turns out, uh, a lot of the Western interlocutors' weight is in Sudan. Presumably, though, Sudan needs some of the things that Western governments can give, particularly funding. One of the big challenges that the civilian government faced, uh, one that was exacerbated by the pandemic, was improving living conditions, was tackling this dreadful economic crisis. And very hard to see how a new military-led government, very hard to see how they can tackle these very difficult economic conditions that were a main source of grievance in the revolution that overthrew Bashir. Very hard to see how they can tackle those without support from international financial institutions, for example, or without support from Western donors. So you don't think that that translates into any leverage? 
Yes, look, Sudan has already uh, benefited demonstrably for, from, uh, you know, this strong, um, uh, particularly Western support for, for its transition. It has achieved debt relief in, in record time. No, no country has moved faster on this. Um, and that has allowed Sudan to begin accessing loans and financing again that have, will allow it to restart its uh, its foundering economy, really. Um, and, and as Marithi said, you know, that economy is really the key to this transition in, in so many ways. Sudan had been a pariah state in a whole range of ways under Bashir, uh, and that included th- their economy, which, which kept them from really participating properly in the global economy, from um, receiving FDI um, in, 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 in any sort of um, you know, euro or, or, or dollar uh, denominations, and to help Sudan recover, um, not just economically, but, but politically and just generally after the 30 years of Omar al-Bashir, that openness to the full breadth of global finance uh, is absolutely necessary. So it is a risk that the military has, uh, has, has created the conditions for those Western investors and fi- international financial institutions to once again turn away from Sudan. Yeah, just to quickly add that while these reforms, um, you know, painful though they may, might have been, you know, um, if they succeeded in yielding a more diversified, more complex a more competitive economy. Unfortunately, that would run directly counter to the interests of the generals. You know, they benefited from a very kleptocratic system that was uh, based on who you know, a very rigged uh, economy, um, you know, especially during sanctions, you know, it tends to create a black economy that's dominated uh, by those in power. Uh, and so unfortunately, their interests were at stake. Um, but as Jonas mentioned, it's not really sustainable. You might get a band aid of support uh, from uh, some of the Gulf actors, but without creating an economy that responds to the needs of the street, you will have another another round of protests. Uh, and, and so it's, it's strange, really. We used to think that they might bide their time, try and see the reforms yield fruit and, 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 and avoid inheriting a basket case. But now they've taken over an economy that's in intensive care unit and they will have to pay a price in the medium term especially. Jonas, can I come back to something you said earlier? You talked about the idea that the fear of justice or accountability might be informing the military's decisions. Could you tell us a bit more about how you see the International Criminal Court indictments here? Uh, Do you sense that there was an unintended negative impact of international involvement in seeking accountability? Or does that reflect the wishes of the Sudanese people? Um, it's a really important one again, uh, and I would say in these transitions, it's always a difficult balancing act. You know, in the political science field, they often say, which is not, of course, what we advocate, that when you have a brutal, violent takeover, um, sometimes you have a, a lower degree of, 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 of chance that the old order will sabotage the new one and come back to power. But when you have, like in Sudan, you know, what was ultimately a relatively peaceful transition, there is a bargain to be done with the old order. Um, I would say that there was, of course, a need to pursue justice. And, and, and it's, a, it's, it's the right thing to do. Uh, but perhaps you could do it in a way that doesn't spook the old order so much that they feel that they are so at risk they should um, just uh, upset the whole apocalypse, as it were. And I would lean towards pragmatism. And I think that's where the African Union potentially can come in now and try and get 
all sides to be fairly pragmatic, to put themselves in each other's shoes, uh, and to find a way that prioritizes the success of the transition, while, of course, not um, just throwing under the carpet the really substantial need uh, for accountability for what we must remember were truly horrific crimes with tens of thousands of victims. Jonas Mariti, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having us, Richard and Naz. Enjoyed this as usual. Thanks for having us. So, Naz, really a, a very dispiriting turn in Sudan after the promise of the revolution. And again, a, a very rich portrayal of what happened and what might lie ahead from Jonas and Mariti. Anything strike you in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Aside from reminding us how important it is to be informed by by those who are on the ground and, and talking to the people involved, I was really struck that both of our guests today were so clear in saying this coup is not going to work, that the military will not be able to sustain power in this way because there is a genuine and, and strong movement in the streets that is demanding a change in the way Sudan is governed. And that this effort by the military, even when backed by violence, will ultimately fail. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and actually, I'll come back to that in a moment, because it looks as though there's going to be big protests on this coming Saturday, and, and obviously the risk of, of violence around those. But let me make maybe two other points quickly first. Uh, the first one, I thought it was striking, again, as uh, Jonas and Mariti both said, sort of how little international opprobrium weighed on the minds of Borhan and, and, and coup leaders. And Western powers had sort of warned them clearly after the coup attempt you know, a few weeks ago. US envoy Jeff Feltman, I think, was even in Khartoum just before the coup, sort of saying, don't, don't do this, but they, but they did it anyway. Uh, you know, whether that's because they had or, or assumed they had support from, from the regional powers we talked about. But Western anger just didn't seem to weigh much in the decision, you know, notwithstanding all the debt relief, notwithstanding the fact that the country does need Western aid. So that's the first point. The second point is that this is really sort of emerging, really sort of appears to be emerging as quite a worrying trend for the continent. You know, African leaders had managed to reduce the numbers of coups over the past decade and, and sort of helped... I think, entrenched quite a strong norm on the continent against military seizures of power, against unconstitutional changes of government. But now, what, over the past year and a half, we've had two in Mali, one in Guinea, and now now this. It's, I think it's in danger of becoming a playbook, you know, grab power, find a compliant civilian, and then get the world to move on. Now, Borhan so far hasn't yet been able to find a, a civilian politicians, uh, with whom he can share power, that can give his regime a sort of veneer of legitimacy. But I think there is a risk that that sort of becomes a, a playbook. And then the last point I wanted to make, and that's related to, 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 to your point, is that this episode of the podcast is, is going to be out what on, on Friday. So on Saturday, the opposition, from what we understand, are planning these sort of huge protests and, and, and sort of reportedly countrywide. And I think this is where the first real flashpoint lies. I mean, that the military then chooses to crack down uh, on those protests, that serious bloodshed against protesters, you know, serious crackdowns would really bode very badly now for the direction of the country. So I think, as Jonas and, and Mariti talked about, so far it's been a peaceful protest movement. You know, that's been part of its success. But it's, it's very difficult to predict what a, you know, what a very harsh crackdown would, would mean for that. So I think it is really just very important that the military... You know, as Mariti says, exercises restraint, that that's the message that Borhan gets. You know, it's not, it's, it's obviously about releasing Hamdok, reversing the coup, 
but especially if there are big protests tomorrow, that he gets this message, you know, if necessary, from Cairo, which, you know, whatever its involvement has, you know, as Mauricio says, strong incentive not not to let things get out of hand, that Borchen gets a strong message not to crack down on, on protesters. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Sudan and the Horn of Africa, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producer, Sam Mednick, and thanks also to Finn Johnson. And thank you, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.